Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing the Bohras, one of the least known but most fascinating Muslim communities whose history takes us from medieval Cairo to Yemen, then across the Indian Ocean to the shores of Gujarat. The Bohras might be defined as a small sect of the Ismaili branch of Shi Islam. We'll come to what all that means just now. Suffice it to say, that Bohras comprise around 1 million followers worldwide, around half of whom live in India. Since they're such a small community, they provide a really insightful case study of how Islam can be at once intensely local, in this case Indianized through centuries of life in Gujarat, but at the same time tied into a bigger global story. In order to follow that story, over the next 45 minutes we'll be looking at a number of questions. First of all, the basic question of who are the Bohras and what all that means about being a branch of the Ismaili sect of Shi Islam. We'll be looking at how they came to India from their early origins in Egypt and then Yemen. We'll be exploring the question of how their Islam was localised or Indianized over the following centuries. How the contours of their community were shaped by existence under two different empires, that of the Muslim Mughals and the non-Muslim, nominally Christian British, and then how in the modern era their religiosity responded to the wider calls for the reform of Islam and the modernization of Muslim doctrine. Finally, we'll be asking the question of what the Bohras tell us about the nature of religious authority in Islam more generally. Helping me understand the Bohras is Dr. Oli Ackerman, a lecturer and research associate at the Institute for Islamic Studies at the Freie Universität or the Free University in Berlin. Oli Ackerman's study of the Bahras is forthcoming with Edinburgh University Press under the title A Neo-Fatimid Treasury of Books, Arabic Manuscripts Among the Alawi Bahras of Barada. Hello, Oli. Hi, Niall. <laughs> Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, today we're going to be talking about a, a community of Indian Muslims known as the, the Bohras. So I suppose we should start off with my asking you to tell us, who are the Bohras? Who are the Bohras? Good question. The Bohras are a small but very vibrant uh, South Asian Muslim community of roughly a million believers, approximately. And um, I should note there are actually three communities. So there are the Daudi Boras in uh, Mumbai, then there are the Alibi Boras in Baroda, and the Suleimani Boras in Hyderabad, and partly they're also in Yemen. And um, so in my research, I focus on the Alibi Boras, this is sort of the smaller group. And the Boras have a fascinating history because even though their religious headquarters can be found today in Gujarat, which is in Western India, um, historically they can be found all over the Indian Ocean. So you find Bora communities in Mombasa, 
in Yemen, uh, well, not today anymore, but historically you did, um, even as far as um, Singapore, all over the Indian Ocean, basically. And um, the Boras, you can recognize them actually um, by their clothes. So wherever you are in the streets of Mumbai or even in Oman, you can recognize especially the women by their very colorful costumes, which are called ridas. And these costumes are basically, they're super fluorescent, very nice actually. And they consist of a skirt and a very big cape with lace around them. Um, and this is fascinating because the Boras on the one hand are so visible in the public space, in the streets, um, everywhere. But at the same time, the Boras also um, practice secrecy up till today. And uh, not much is actually known about them. And the secrecy is a practice that, um, that you see on, on different levels. So there's secrecy to the outside world, meaning that you and I as non-Boris, well, we don't know much about the community and members of the community are not really allowed to talk about what they believe in. But then um, the Boras also have different layers of secrecy within their communities. And um, each Bora community, so the Daudis, the Sulemanis, the Alevis, they have a religious leader, the Dai, um, who is considered sort of a semi-infallible spiritual leader. And um, he is not just uh, the ruler of the community, but he is also the head of um, the secret treasury of books of these communities. And um, so that's another layer of secrecy in a way. So each community has a secret um, treasury of books, which almost functions like a little shrine. And um, that's what my research focuses on. Um, I find these shrines uh, of books fascinating because of the secrecy, but also they contain um, living manuscript traditions, meaning that manuscripts are still copied by hand today. And they're, um, as such, they're central for the um, sort of the identity of the communities that they're kept in. <laughs> This is one of the things I think is most fascinating about the Boras, isn't it? Because Muslims in India, although India and the South Asian subcontinent, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, has the largest Muslim population in the world, doesn't yeah. it, of any region? Yeah. And in India itself, the Republic of India, there are probably something like 120 million Muslims. Yeah. So although we say a million Boras sounds like quite a lot, it's probably yeah. 1% of the, the, the Muslim population of India, something like that. Absolutely. And yet they have this very distinct identity, don't they, as you say, through, shown through their clothes and also through their their distinctive religiosity as transmitted over time and as maintained through this, this manuscript culture. Absolutely. And I think that's something that's, that's so uh, extraordinary about them, this maintenance very self-consciously of a manuscript culture, in fact, isn't it? That, Absolutely. You know, kind of, although they print books as well, there's this manuscript element that actually traces then their history over at least a millennium, obviously ultimately back to the Prophet Muhammad, as all Muslims do, yeah. but traces their history back to medieval or indeed early medieval 10th century Egypt isn't it absolutely and perhaps we can talk yeah. about that because there's this journey of the Boras although I introduced them from the beginning of saying they're Indian Muslims yeah but actually their history um, is really much more international isn't it Very coming from Egypt across yeah. the Indian Ocean to India and then out of India yeah. to Africa and other places so I wonder if you could tell us you know kind of talk us through something of that early history how they relate to other Muslims, particularly other Shia Muslims, and, and what their, their journey through time and space was. 
Absolutely, yes. The Boras certainly have a remarkable journey through time and space, um, and yeah, as being part of a larger Muslim community at the same time. So according to the narrative of these communities, the Boras, they trace their history back um, to the Fatimid Empire. But I should probably first say a few words about this. So the Fatimids um, were Shi'i Ismaili Muslims. Now this really sounds like a mouthful, but in that sense, the Boras fascinate me because they are a minority of a minority of a minority of a minority. Mm. <laughs> So, um, well, there are many Muslim contexts. I don't think there is one Muslim world, but if you would say in, in the Muslim world, there are Sunnis and Shi'is, and the Shi'is are in the minority. And the Shi'is, they followed uh, the grandson of Prophet Muhammad, Ali. And, um, and in a way, then also the Shi'is, they, they, there are several groups of them. So the largest group of, of uh, Shi'is are the Twelvers, who followed 12 uh, sort of holy imams. And then there are the Ismailis. And the Ismailis, they actually followed seven imams. Now, this is all a bit complicated, but um, the Boras, like other Ismailis, they trace their history, they trace their texts, they trace their clerical genealogy and many practices that came with them to an Ismaili empire that ruled um, North Africa and the Middle East from the 10th until the 12th century. And the capital of this empire was Cairo. And um, according to the narrative of the Boras particularly, um, they actually, they relate to the Boras in the sense that they, they, they consider themselves today in the present time, even though they live in India, they are Indians, they're Gujaratis, they see themselves as neo-Fatimids in a way. Mm. And um, this is not a coincidence, of course. And um, as historians, we're really fascinated by how people, of course, construct their past. But the Fatimid empire for Ismailis, and I think also for the world of Shiism, um, was an extremely important period in Islam because it was the period, especially for Ismailism, where um, well, there was this huge empire, but also it was the flourishing of um, the arts, of Ismaili literature, of uh, law, and so forth. And um, also the libraries of the Fatimid Caliph Imams who ruled this empire were supposedly the biggest libraries of sort of the Islamic world at the time. Now, I mentioned libraries and sort of these sacred treasuries of books today. That's how the Boras limp themselves. So the Boras, what they, they, how they look at history is that they consider themselves as sort of having split up from the Fatimid Empire right before its fall in the 12th century. Mm. So there are all these very interesting paradigms on the fall of the Fatimids as, you know, the empire was conquered by the Ayyubids, and who were Sunnis, and all the libraries were destroyed. And that basically meant the end of Ismailism in the Middle East. Yet the Boras say, no, we as a small community actually managed to split up from the Fatimid Caliphs right before its fall. We followed a different Imam, uh, known as Imam Tayyip, who was brought to Yemen, which at that time was a small Fatimid enclave. 
And in Yemen, this imam went into hiding. Now, this sounds perhaps a bit esoteric, but in the context of Shiism, having an imam that goes into concealment and that comes back at some point to sort of restore justice on earth is a very common, uh, common theme. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's yeah. sort of stay on this a little bit, yeah. this idea of, the, of, of an imam, because that's what distinguishes Shias in a sense, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah. That the word Shi comes from the Arabic, and that the Shi'at Ali, isn't it? The, yeah. the partisans or the followers of Ali in the, the first years of Islamic history in the, the 650s and, or oh, sorry, 630s through, through 50s and 60s. And it's then the, the family of Ali, isn't it, and his descendants that, that, that become known as the imams. Yeah. And what distinguished Shiism or distinguished she is from what become the Sunnis, uh, that these are the, the Muslims that, that believe there should be a single appointed leader who is from the family of Muhammad, which effectively means from the lineage of Ali, isn't it, his yeah. descendants. And Sunni Muslims ultimately believe, or come to believe over time, that authority rests in the consensus of the, the scholars of the community, the experts of Quran and Islamic law and so on. So with the descendants of Ali then, of course, over time, his descendants grow into different branches, don't yeah. they? And as you said, the, what we call the, the 12 Shia, what ordinary people just think of Shias, the Shias of Iran and Iraq, the yeah. larger number of Shias, their imam went into, into hiding, into occultation, as yeah. the, the, Shia, the 12 Shias believe, in uh, a couple of centuries after Ali's death. And then... That's not. That was the by the twelfth generation, the twelfth Imam. Yeah. But then we're talking about these Ismailis. Then follow follow another lineage. Then the lineage Definitely. of an Imam called Ismail, which gets the yeah. then the name Ismailis. And then your Bohras break off from the better known Ismaili Shias that follow the Aga Khan today yeah. into these different lineages. Then that come through Fatimid Egypt, isn't it? When there were these this lineage of living Imams who actually rule this this empire that you've described. Absolutely. So this idea of an imam is absolutely central, but then yeah. ultimately with, with the Boris as well, their lineage, well, doesn't die out in their own terms at least. Their imam goes into, into hiding, into occultation, being a mm -hmm. hidden imam. Yeah. And it's there, it's that point then that, that the yeah. texts come to stand in in some way for the authority and the presence of the, of yeah. the living imam. Yeah, because that of course is a real crisis for a community. Right, the imam. I mean, in this case, also according to the tradition, this imam was actually a small baby, so that makes the story even more uh, interesting. But of course, the whole idea of religious authority needed to be, yeah, reinterpreted, reconstructed, and that's where we see that uh, that texts, of course, and the transmission of texts of these imams, which basically, like you said, right, they, these imams basically. They can link their blood lineage back to the, the Prophet Muhammad. And therefore, according uh, to the Ismailis, have a very special status, of course. Um, these texts need to be, you know, not just copied, but enshrined. They're sacred objects. And sort of the crux of this whole Bora narrative is like, well, you know, the Fatimid Empire came to an end. Its libraries were completely destroyed. But we as Taib Ismailis, because that's how they were known, because they followed an imam named Al Taib. We took with us a substantial amount of these super sacred uh, Ismaili texts from Fatimid Cairo. We brought them to Yemen and we recopied them, we um, reworked them 
into these uh, what then became secret uh, sort of treasuries of books in a way. And this is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, in world history, one thinks of some, perhaps something like, you know, the fall of Byzantium in 1453 exactly. yeah. yeah. and, yeah. and various yeah. kind of Greek texts being brought over to Europe, which help kind of feed the emerging sort of renaissance in Europe. But what's got sort of something in a similar sense going on here is that it's the famous Saladin, isn't it? Salahuddin, yeah. who was the, the Sunni conqueror known in, 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 in the Islamic world more for having destroyed the and ended the Fatimid yeah. Shi, the, the Fatimid Ismaili Shi'i Caliphate, which for Sunni Muslims was was something heretical. So in the in, in Muslim Sunni context, at least Saladin Salahuddin is better known for ending the the, yeah. the, the, the Caliphate rather yeah. than his, his fights with Crusaders. But it's at that point then that, that, that we have this transmission then of the survival of these manuscripts that take this extraordinary journey, isn't yeah, it, across absolutely. then yeah. various seascapes really to Arabia, to Yemen, yeah. and then on to India. <laughs> Tell us about this journey, Absolutely. how this yeah. how this came about, and and how the the authority of the text and the authority of of living people in the absence of a yeah. present visible living imam anymore. How how authority among uh, the Bohras gets reconstructed and transferred into this this new homeland for um, yeah, for, sure. for the Bohras in India. Yeah, because that's really um, sort of a survival story of books in a way, right? Um, because uh, sort of in the in the Yemeni context, we see we we have contemporary sources, but not too many about sort of the faith of these manuscripts and and their repositories. But what we see is that um, new models of religious authorities are uh, established, which were models that were taken from the Fatimid period and were sort of implemented in Yemen. So we see that a Dai becomes the new head of of the community, sort of as a political leader, but also the one who who uh, is the only one who is still in contact with the hidden imam. So can we explain that a bit more? So yeah, we have sure. an imam who's supposed yeah. to be the, the blood lineal yeah. descendant of ultimately of, of, of Ali, yeah. the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad, right. the Nabi Muhammad. So we have the, the imam who's the, the, the blood lineal descendant. And then we have this new figure when he goes into hiding as it's seen, as it's seen by yeah. uh, Shias themselves, the Da'i, spelled D-A apostrophe yeah. I or yeah. Y. Yeah. So Da'i. Yeah. So tell us about you know what that word means and, yeah. and how they emerge. Yeah, that has a fascinating history, actually, because this word Da'i, it's Arabic, and um, Da'i is basically a missionary officer, someone who spreads the faith, right? And that was its meaning in the Fatimid period, because during the Fatimid period, Ismailism was... Well, basically, dais were sent all over to convert people. Yet in and the, trying to convert Sunnis to yes, to exactly. To, sense, yeah, right? exactly, because not many people were actually as Ismaili at the time. Most people were Sunni. Yet in the Yemeni um, context, we see that this office of the dai becomes a completely new religious authority. So the dai, uh, you have to sort of imagine it like this: there is this community that is waiting for uh, an imam that is in hiding to come back, but they don't know when. And this imam will basically restore justice on earth, right? Because um, it's, it's sort of, that, that is the model, it's sort of like the messiahs. And the dai is the person who has to really lead the community through these difficult times. So he's not just a political figure, but he's also a spiritual figure. And he's the only one who's still in contact with this imam who is in concealment. Because the Boras actually believe that 
their imam is somewhere on earth. Other Shi'i communities believe other things, but this is what the Boras, um, what they, um, what they believe. And so we have on the one hand this establishment of this 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 new Ismaili uh, sort of imamate new community in Yemen, but then interestingly the, there is also this other meaning of Dai, which means profession of the faith, right? So it was during this period and actually even earlier already that via Indian Ocean trade. Um, Believers of these communities end up in Gujarat, in Western, um, in Western India. Um, and in Gujarat, again, via these mercantile patterns, uh, right, following the monsoon winds, um, they manage to convert um, local Hindu uh, traders. So Hindu believers from the local traders' castes. And this is actually how we get to the term Bora, because um, Bora, is, you only um, refer to Boras to believers in India, not in Yemen. And Boras, now I'm not a specialist of this, but it comes from the word Behavar, if I pronounce it correctly, which means something like earnest dealings. So even in the term of Bora, there is this really this mercantile, it has this mercantile flavor. And um, while the community in India grows, people convert, and we can talk about that later because that's a whole different universe, we see that in Yemen um, the situation is going not so well for the Ismailis due to, well, all kinds of reasons, internal conflicts, external conflicts with other Shi communities, for instance. And we're in the medieval period at this time. Yeah, we well. exactly. So we're, we're, we're now in, say, the 15th, 16th century. And at some point in history, we see that the religious headquarters of the Ismailis in Yemen are moved to India in the 16th century, which is remarkable because if you think about it, before this was a Yemeni sort of post-Fatimid Ismaili community. But then, and of course in the literature this is just described, of, oh, and then the headquarters were moved to India, but that must have been quite something. So in the 16th century we see that uh, this idea of the Dai, which is um, a sort of a... Um, yeah, how do you call it? It's sort of a position that you inherit from father to son or uncle to... And uh, the first Indian Dai is appointed. And soon we see that the headquarters, including all these sacred Fatimid texts, right? And it's sort of this treasury of books is also moved overseas uh, and ends up in Gujarat. <laughs> So we have these developments, don't we, that are, on the one hand really have great resonance in, in Islamic history more broadly, and that's partly yeah. the, the importance of, of trade and of the Indian Ocean. Because a lot of people think often of, of Islam as being in Middle Eastern religion because the Prophet Muhammad and, and the Quran emerge in, in Arabia, which modern geography would say that's the Middle East. Yeah. But in fact, when we look at Arabia on the map, the Arabian Peninsula, it's a peninsula jutting into what? Absolutely. The Arabian Sea as part of the larger Indian Ocean. Yeah. Yeah. And the Prophet Muhammad himself, having been a merchant through his earlier professional life, so to speak, then the, 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 the role of, of trade was so important in, in early Islamic history, and not least of Indian Ocean trade, yeah. of early Arab merchants before uh, the emergence of Islam and afterwards. And actually some of the earliest Muslim communities in the world are in the, the South Asian, the Indian and what's now the Pakistani yeah. coastline around yeah. the Indian Ocean, as yeah. these Indian merchants, sorry, these Arabian merchants spread around the Indian Ocean and marry and convert local women and become 
the progenitors, the ancestors of various of these early Muslim communities around the Indian Ocean. So the the movement of of, of Ismailism, and as you said, what what when uh, when they settle in India, they get this name of Bohra, the this Gujarati word for merchant. That has kind of much resonance and in yeah. these larger patterns and processes in Islamic history generally, isn't it? Absolutely. But then there were these very specific developments, aren't there, because with with regard to the Bohras, and not least that they have this now institutionalized office of a da'i, which originally was a missionary, which could have been yeah. many different people. Yeah. But now it becomes then the hereditary ancestral standing or representative of the hidden imam. Completely, yeah. And then this manuscript culture, again, that's being carried over from Egypt, becomes equally important too. So what happens then from this point <laughs> in the 16th century then, when, when, when these Ismailis have, have moved from Fatimid Egypt to Yemen, yeah. they've come to India, become involved presumably with these Gujarati merchants that give them their nickname or their, ultimately their community name, India Bohra. Yeah. To what degree do they become Indianized in that yeah. journey? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's actually, I have to say here also that it's years after doing my field work, having spent time with the Boras, which was five years ago, that I'm, I'm, I'm starting to realize the importance of that question. Because I always looked at this question through the lens of Yemen, but of course, uh, there is a huge transformation that is happening via Indian Ocean and then in Gujarat. So one of the things we see, because of course many things happened, and also the, the whole topic of, of conversion is of course fascinating, why people convert, um, and why do people convert from Hinduism to Islam. Uh, that's a whole different, I think, body of scholarship. But uh, there is always this notion also among the Boras that, well, you know, converting to Islam for us meant that there was more egalitarianism because we could sort of uh, sort of escape from the caste system. Now, I don't know if this, in the case of the Boras, how this exactly happened. But uh, if we look at the larger developments in history, what we see is that um, this office of the Dai becomes more sacred. So religious authority in Gujarat, in medieval Gujarat, so we're talking 16th, 17th, 18th century, revolves around the Dai as being the head of a sacerdotal royal family. So we're not just talking about clerics. I mean, so the Dai and his entourage, they're clerics. In fact, they are the absolute clerics in the sense that they, they are almost, in Arabic you say kal ma'asum, so they're almost considered, the Dai is almost considered infallible. So that's fascinating. It's something you don't have in Sunni Islam. Um, but at the same time, they're also becoming part of a royal family with all kinds of royal, um, well, ways of dressing, right? Sartorial practices, royal um, ceremonies, royal attributes, all kinds of um, royal traditions that come into in, into sort of Bora-ness. And um, I'm not a specialist sort of the period of what happened during conversion, but I can only sort of imagine that... Um, in the Hindu context, there must have been peers, there must have been uh, models of religious authority. And and what is very clear to me is that... Um, a pe peer is a, a, a right. Sufi leader, isn't yeah. it? A Sufi holy man. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so yeah, uh, or the equivalent of that, right, in a Hindu context. The guru. Yeah, the guru, in a way. And these models must have merged to with, 
ideas of what it meant of being Ismaili, you know, coming from Yemen. And you see it, for instance, also in the language that the Bora speak, which is fascinating. It's sort of a social act. So the Boras are Gujaratis, so in their day and day life, they speak Gujarati. Um, but they also have a language which is called Lisa Nadawa, which is Arabic for sort of the language of the Dawa. Of, well, originally, Dawa actually meant uh, sort of, um, you know, missionary activities. Now the word means, Dawa means community in this context. But anyways, Lisana Dawa was the, is still the language that the Boras use for all official ceremonies. And it's a fascinating mix of Gujarati and Urdu. So, and it's written in, in well, the Arabic script, basically. It's written as if it's Urdu, but it's Gujarati. And it has a lot of Arabic loan words that you don't find in Urdu. And um, historically, the Lisana Dawa must have been the language that, the, that basically the missionary officials that came from Yemen and who didn't speak a word of Gujarati, sort of that they spoke, you know, it was a mix of these two languages, the Arabic and the Gujarati. And now that has become like an official Bora language, both written and spoken in a way. So that's another um, example. But of course, there are a lot of things in social practice, in day-to-day -day life among Boris, because that's what Bori belie Bora believers are called, right, Boris, that I observed during my field work. So for instance, um, coconuts, you see coconuts and sort of the sacredness of coconuts in all rituals. You see it in dress. I mean, I discussed um, the reda, which is a, sp a specific Bora thing, but historically, um, uh, Bora women also were, wore like an equivalent of the Gujarati saris. Um, you see it in other rituals as well, like color of skin. And that for me was really remarkable, is related to one's hierarchy in the clerical, in the clerical system. Um, the kissing of feet, um, there are all kinds of rituals. Ritual purity is very important among the Boras which is something you see in social practice. It's interesting because you see this, this confluence of Islam on the one hand, where, of course, you also have to be ritually pure, for instance, to, to pray, right? Or to do other uh, religious duties. But the Boras have taken that to, to another level. So you can see that, for instance, also in the way, sorry to return to the manuscripts and the treasury of books, but um, all these rituals um, transcend social practice and you see that even in in the way texts are stored or dealt with so it's a fascinating mix and i'm still as as a researcher i'm trying to disentangle you know even though that's probably not really realistic but we have this fascinating confluence on of gujarati culture hindu practices yemeni practices and and sort of um, a neo fatimid identity that is weaved through this in a way. The Bohras use the term khizana, the Arabic word for a treasury, to describe their their sacred archive, one might say, I suppose, where, where they keep their most treasured Arabic texts. Can you tell us about the role of these sacred texts in Bohra life? Absolutely, yeah, the khizana or the treasuries of books. So first, maybe very practical, each community has its own khizana. And in the case of the Alawis, this khizana is literally in the middle of the Bora quarter. And what I observed is that these treasuries of books 
play an immensely important role, not just in the construction of the Bora's identity as sort of neo-Fatimid Ismailis, but also in the day-to-day -day life. And actually, um, there are sort of centers that represent the clerical uh, establishment in a way. So in the case of the Alois, the uh, treasury of books is also the uh, headquarters of the clerical establishment. So if you sort of imagine this space with all these cupboards with very ancient books, that is the treasury of books, but at the same time, believers walk in and out. So they know, it's actually very smart, they know that it's there, but they cannot access these sacred books in a way. And that's very important to understand how the politics of these book treasuries work, because it divides the community between those who have access to them, the clerics, and those who have not. Yet at the same time, I also observed that these books are secret, and therefore they were not, they're not supposed to be seen or read. And no one in the community would ever, for instance, open a cupboard. I mean, no one would do that. But at the same time, I, I observed that these books play an immensely important role even in the daily lives of, of believers. So believers would come in and out of um, the office of the Dai, and he would take out a, a very old manuscript, a handwritten book, basically, and would use these for purposes of healing. Or, for instance, um, use the notes that were found in the book covers um, um, to recite poetry. Or, for instance, I already mentioned the talismanic power of these texts, but I found all these texts, for instance, that describe how to perform certain rituals. For instance, when a woman is pregnant and she wants to receive blessings or even the taking of Quranic omens, which is a tradition that you find all over South, uh, South Asia. So on the one hand, um, these books might be secret, yet at the same time, believers, they're part of their lives in a way, and they're sort of sacred and enshrined in these, in these chizanat. So they really, the books are of course not people, but they're in a way sort of enshrined as in, in sort of in, in the context of South Asia, you have a lot of shrines where people go to um, as pilgrimage, right? That's part of the tradition. And that's how you should also interpret these chizanat uh, in a way in the communities. And that's why they're so important. <laughs>
how the religious authorities in these communities, that's what they derive their power from, right? And of course, there are also printed books in, in Bora communities because all believers also read no, about their religion. But it's these, these special, very sacred, secret uh, manuscripts in, the, in these um, repositories that cannot, they cannot be put in print, into print. So that it's because of the circulation, of course, so that they don't move outside of, of the Khizana. But it's also this notion of um, these, the content of these books is so sacred. How can you put that materially into print? It has to be transmitted by, by hand, literally. And that is a process that takes years. And it's part of all kinds of rituals of, of initiation and stages of initiation and um, spiritual purity. And that tradition can never be materialized in a, in a printed book. And also, we must realize that the dais are considered, um, as I said, almost infallible. They're these sacred human beings. So everything they put on paper also has a sacred materiality. So uh, that is something that um, that yeah that tradition needs to be needs to be um, you inherit that tradition if you're part of the royal family in a way, and also the continuation and the transmission of this tradition by hand is what keeps the community a community in a way, and that's why it's it's sort of their sacred capital. So community defined by following a dai and by this textual tradition that's in many ways unique to them. Absolutely. And this reflects again so many developments of, of the history of Muslim communities all around the world that yeah. everywhere that the Muslims converted or settled over Definitely. 1400 years of, of Islamic history there's been this localization, this adaptations to local environments. They've been sometimes linguistic, haven't they? Yeah. They've been sometimes Absolutely. sartorial in terms of yeah. dress, sometimes ritual. I mean, as you said, this absorbing of elements of not so much kind of, of Hindu religiosity as, as, as much of an Indian religious vocabulary of the importance Completely. of coconuts, for yeah. example, and, yeah. um, and indeed the kind of the, the issues of, of ritual purity. Yeah. But... Of course, during the modern period as well, let's say the, the 19th and especially 20th century, in many, many Muslim environments, there have been actually pushback against this localization with mm -hmm. attempts to reform or purify, sometimes to modernize, but effectively in many ways to actually kind of rid Islam, purify, as some yeah. Muslim reformers would say it, of these local adaptations that have yeah. emerged over the a thousand years or more of Muslim history in different environments. Yeah. To what extent... Of, uh, as as Boha religiosity kind of echoed any of these wider developments of modernization or yeah. reform? That's a, a very good but very complicated questions, uh, question. On the one hand, I would say that, well, we of course see an echo of this development also in the last century among the Boras, especially the Daudis, but I think the other communities as well, where um, a lot of things in these communities change. So, for instance, the institutionalization of, uh, well, of many things, of not just the clergy, but also of institutions of learning, this idea of education for both genders, which is very important, which are, of course, all themes that, you know, one sees everywhere. Um, so, so in that sense, yes, there is an influence, but I also 
would really argue that um, the Boras, of course, everyone finds the community they work on unique. <laughs> uh, but what is fascinating is that the Boras, in a way, have been able to preserve a lot of practices, whether it's through ritual or through texts, um, that in other communities might have been lost a little bit. Because, I mean, if we think of like larger Wahhabi tendencies in, in Sunni Islam, but I'm also thinking, for instance, of the Iranian revolution that had a huge effect on, on 12 Shi communities all over the world uh, that went far beyond, um, uh, went far beyond uh, Iran, actually. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that this never influenced uh, the Boras, but I think uh, I've, I've, I've talked about this with the clerics, for instance. I think it made them more aware of their own identity of being Bora and that that is something else than Twalbashi or Agakani Ismaili or, well, there are many other groups, of course, as well, Tabliris and so forth. And I think that they manage also through this social construct of secrecy, which again is very thick, that through that they have successfully really managed to keep a lot of their own traditions and that's also why up till today like we hardly know anything about the Boras and their history and um, even even practices as well there are only very few anthropologists for instance that have even actually set foot um, in these communities and and in that sense I think also looking at the Boras in a larger in a larger context um, are, it's like you said, right? It's a community of the sea. And in that sense, I think so far as being Ismailis, the Boras have always been sort of categorized as, as, as well, they're the other Ismailis in a way. Because and Islam always comes from sort of the West and it's an Arabic thing. And even Ismailism came from Persia. But the Boras are their, yeah, their own unique thing in a way, and also really they're merchants of the sea, and that is another story of Islam in a way, and how how that developed. Yes, because although, as you said, from the Fatimid period, there's this, yeah. there's this period in Ismaili Shi history of of attempts to convert yeah. other Muslims, indeed, kind of in some senses to convert all kinds of people to to yeah. to uh, Shi Ismailism. And that's this office of the Dai originally in its original format yeah. to be a missionary. But as the, the Bohra community emerges and settles in India, it actually, in a sense, kind of closes its gates to the wider world rather than to com- trying to convert yeah. other people. It, so yeah. in some senses, turns yeah. in on itself that one can't convert to being yeah, a Bohra. And it's actually a closed community in that sense. And, yeah. and in that regard, both with the books, the manuscripts, the secrecy around their contents only being available to certain scholars and the, the, the hereditary deities themselves yeah. and the fact that one can't marry into or convert into being yeah. a Bohri has kind of maintained this very distinctive uh, uh, Islamic identity Absolutely. despite a period and through a period yeah. of immense kind of reform and change. Yeah. What do you think then the history of the Bohras or indeed maybe the, the, the history of the Bohras in modern times tells us about yeah. the nature of religious authority in Islam? That's a good question. Well, I think, but I think I already sort of said that now, in a way it, it, it tells us, first of all, it tells us sort of an alternative story of, of uh, well, of what it, what it even means to be, what it even means to be sort of Muslim, right? Through a very different perspective and religious authority in the case of the Boras is so central 
in that because the diet i mean we haven't really talked about the, the modern period but i can assure you in the daily lives of of, of bora believers today the dye is is present in in all facets right there there are three groups and these groups maybe to indian numbers are not so big but they're still quite huge but these communities today it's really remarkable how their networks uh, work of religious authority right and for very simple things uh, in life when everything goes via the dye in a way that's why he's considered also almost infallible so i think that is really a unique uh yeah quite a unique phenomenon that we don't really see anymore uh, in to such an extent but i think what it also what the boris also shows about religious authority is how empires from from the past i mean we're talking about the 10th to 12th century no with the fatimids which is a really long time ago completely different uh historical cultural religious setting perhaps but how empires uh, from like ages ago still continue to really shape communities today and in that sense the boras are perhaps not unique we see that development in other contexts as well for instance um in turkey today there's suddenly this neo ottomanism where the ottoman period was the grand period in turkish or ottoman history and that is revived but um really this revival of very old ideas in in a way um yeah and i think religious authority it also shows sort of the um, diversity right in in religious authority and what it means because we have very fixed ideas at least i come from islamic studies and there we have uh, there are always these fixed ideas like well you're either sunni then you have imams as well but they actually don't have any sort of they're not sacred they're not linked to the prophet muhammad but they're just you can find them in a the mosque then there are 12 rashi's we find them in iran we have ayatollahs right that's the other model and that those are sort of the two options but i think all these many communities they 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 show us fascinating examples of different construction of of uh, yeah of religious authority the arakanis but also the boras in their own special way dr ali akman thank you for talking to us in akbar's chamber you're most welcome my pleasure Da 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 da